0: Episode thirty four twenty, which is not the last, but certainly one of the last new episodes for twenty twenty three, because we are heading headlong into twenty twenty four. I'm pretty excited about this new year. The last couple of New Years were kind of crappy, honestly, with some of the things that have been going on in the world. There's still plenty of crappy things going on in the world, but they just seem less particularly directly effective uh, to our lifestyles. Especially, if we're building that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't, that we've been talking about doing for 15 years. So what are we going to talk about today? We've got a listener Q&A show for today. I thought it would be a good day to clean out the inbox, and mostly things that are completely 100% non-political. Very little fire and brimstone today. Here's what we got. grape seed oil. Is it a seed oil? Good. Less bad? What? Would I buy a property with transmission lines running across? It used to own one, and... My opinion on that's actually changed a bit since then, but uh, I wouldn't rule it out, but I'll explain it when we get there. Is there any concern about anaerobic conditions in flow through wicking beds or wicking beds in general, for that matter? Um, Children are obese. I agree this is a problem. Somebody agrees with me that obese children is a problem in America today. Not generally a person that I would uh, tend to agree with about many things. Bernie Sanders, the socialist, socialist, democrat, whatever he is, senator, communist, he he thinks it's a problem. I agree. Of course, his solution and mine are probably different. We'll talk about that when we get there. How cold hardy are daikon radishes as a cover crop? Somebody said I planted them. I recently listened to your episode on cover crops. You said they were cold hardy. First freeze I got, they all died. We'll talk about that. That may or may not happen depending on a variety of Things that it depends, and we'll talk about what those are. I know people think I use it depends as a way to get out of things, but I always try to explain what it depends upon, because most things do depend upon other things. Um, Is it a coincidence that we printed exactly roughly 25% more money from the beginning of COVID till today? And that the compounded inflation across that times rate right at the exact same number. No, it's not a coincidence. It's pretty obvious unless you know you're in the media or a politician or an economist, then you can't quite figure out that correlation. Making the choice to bug in or bug out, especially if we had another pandemic. Talk about that one. Uh, should you sand down the finish on modern cast iron? I'm going to straight out say no. But we'll talk about what it depends upon and why not. When we get to that, and I'll reference an article from Paul Wheaton where he did that and made himself, well, particularly miserable in doing so. I love when people make themselves miserable and doing a thing and say, it's not worth it. I, I don't like it for them. I don't like feel good about their misery. I, I, I'm i not my buddy, David, who likes to revel in other people's misfortune. Um, but Hey, they did it anyway. So now I get to know without having to go and do it myself. Um, We also have thoughts on meat chickens for a year using hatchlings primarily from a laying flock. Uh, This one may not work out quite the way the person intended, but we'll talk about it anyway. Um, Then we have a listener who chimed in on my response about using Nextdoor for neighborhood monitoring of potential problems and said, my assessment of our area, which is your concern factors move from a one to a three, you know, with like 10 being you're dead and everything's a glass factory and like eight being, hey, you better be on the roof with your AR uh, is probably dead on. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. And we're going to talk about the toolbox fallacy a little bit. That'll be our anchor segment today to kind of kick you in the ass as we head into the new year. Uh, well, just a off the cuff comment that I made, I think during a I think it was actually during one of my streams with John Willis and Nicole. And uh, we're going to explore that a little bit more, and we may even do a toolbox fallacy uh, revised episode uh, early January of the coming year. If you're like, what the hell is a toolbox fallacy? Don't worry. I'll tell you when we get there. Now, before we jump into it, I want to real quick let you guys know about this composting class. I put out a video on it where I answered a bunch of questions, and then somebody in the comments immediately asked me three questions that I answered in the video. All the questions are also answered on the link that's in the video to the page that you're seeing if you're watching a live stream right now. It's going to be a composting class on the 6th or 7th of January. I'm targeting the 6th. If you listen to the video or read the write-up, you'll understand why it's an or. It has to do with weather. I just want to throw out right now I have three people signed up for this class already. I need five to make it work. I have no doubt I'm going to get to more. So if you've been like, I don't really want to do it unless it's confirmed that it's going to happen, it, it, it it's going to happen. it still could not happen on those dates because weather. OK, so read the write up or listen to the video. But please consider coming. I am building something completely new here with these online uh, educational courses. I'm trying to keep the cost of them very, very reasonable. So anybody who wants to take them can. And we're moving toward a full on certification. Uh, the course that we're building right now for the composting course, you get the online version for free. If you come to the hands-on, uh, that's limited to a a potential maximum of 10 people and, uh, more stuff's available on it. But if you come to this, it's going to be totally worth your time. You're going to make connections with people who are local to the area. We're not going to get a lot of people from the outside, um, uh, you know, the, the Metroplex area. So you got good local connections that you may not have had before. You get about five hours with me in a very small group. Uh, Some innovations that have happened since even the last bioreactors we built in November will be revealed and some other cool things. Uh, I just got a shipping confirmation on something that goes right into my next course that fits with this compost. And I ain't going to tell you what it is. But if you come, you get to see it in action. So. With that, and somebody's the Builder of Castle says golf ball size hail will make doing that class a bit hard. I don't know if you know something I don't because we're looking uh, far enough out that we probably shouldn't have golf ball-sized hail uh, on the forecast yet. But uh, I did have people say, like, I'll have to take off work for this. You know, when will you know – I would say when we're in like the seven to ten day window, we can look at the projected forecast. We'll be able to make a call as to if it's going to happen. And as we get closer, which day with with Saturday being the plan, I like when I do a class over a weekend to do it on Saturday. It gives me and everybody that comes to it Sunday to get our lives recombobulated before we go back to work on Monday. All right. So with that, let's start digging on into this. Uh, let's start off with the fact that I was asked a question after, uh, and just a big thank you to Ken Berry for being part of yesterday's show. Ken Barry and I talked about new diets and like in the most, the least restrictive diet that I gave, I gave six different diets to choose from. And, you know, we didn't even get into real heavy carbohydrate restriction until the fourth one. So it was none or moderate carbohydrate restriction. And but one of the things I said that everybody should do is get seed oil out of their life. And we actually are starting to get more people paying attention to us over on Rumble. And one of the comments on Rumble was, well, is grape seed oil a seed oil? It's expensive. It's not, you know, the type of thing that we're growing out in these giant fields and spraying with all these chemicals and everything. It is a seed, but it's not really like, is it or isn't it? And, and here's how I answer this. I believe that there are very few things that are just like you eat it, you're going to die, like, like uh strychnine or uh cyanide or something. Uh, and there's very few things that are like, you know, the angels brought them down and handed them to ye and they are the sanctified is perfect. Right. There's always a variance. So I would put, well, we say seed oils, and we're talking about the industrial seed oils that are done at mass scale in conventional ag that we normally are talking about that are on the shelves from Weston and Crisco and all. It is very bad. Like, you're not going to die today, but you're killing yourself by eating them. They're that bad. And then you start to move ingredient from the worst of the worst, which would be like cottonseed and canola would be like cottonseed at the bottom of the pit, canola just above it, corn right in there with the canola, but maybe a little bit, sunflower, same thing. As you're moving toward better, grape seed's probably at the highest level of total shit. And there's different versions thereof of grape seed oil. Let's understand, first of all, where does this come from? Does anybody grow grapes to make oil? No. It is a byproduct or a co-product, but depending on how you look at it, to the winemaking process. So grapes that are grown for you to eat, generally they come with the seed in them and you spit the seed out or they're seedless. So the biggest concentration of seeded grapes <clears throat> that are used <clears throat> in this country are in the venting industry. So most of them are wine grapes. And there's very little oil per grape seed far less than even these industrial oils like canola and stuff. So there's two ways to get it out. One is a straight press. That's called cold press. That would be the least bad that I still probably wouldn't use. But if I was going to use grapeseed oil for some reason, and if you made something and it had a tablespoon of grapeseed oil in it, I'm going to eat it. I'm just not going to make it part of my regular diet, okay? Poison is the dose. But cold pressed is probably semi-okay. Then there's solvent extracted. How do you know if it's solvent extracted? Well, no grape oil that I can find is done with a heat extraction like canola and, and you know, rape seed and corn and all that. It's all either cold pressed or solvent extracted. Cold sp- pressed costs more because you get a lot lower yield per, you know, ton of grape seed. It's just a, it's a, exactly what it sounds like. You press it, what comes out comes out, and it separates from any water. Yeah. So they take these solvents. And they put the solvent on the oil, but don't worry because they filter the solvents out after it's done. You see what I'm saying about less bad, more bad type thing. So here's my thing. It's expensive. It does have somewhat of a pleasing characteristic flavor-wise for oil. But it's no less expensive than the plant oils that I actually consider safe for human consumption, which are pretty much um, avocado oil and coconut oil. Are like the two that, you know, spring to mind as being okay. And then your nut oils, if you're not using it every day all the time, most people wouldn't because they're so expensive, but avocado oil, right? So of the three I just mentioned, the plant-based oils that I'm kind of okay with, your avocado um, <clears throat> oil, probably the best of the best uh, is avocado and olive, probably a tie. I would say neutral to beneficial. Not negative at all, unless you're eating some highly sprayed toxic version thereof. Um, olive oil comes from the, the fruit of the olive, not the pit. And likewise, oil is extracted from avocados. And then I would put coconut a little bit toward the bad side. But, you know, that's where MCTs are derived from, medium cha- chain triglycerides. So overall, those are okay. And they don't cost any less or any more than grapeseed oil. So I would use these other oils or even when I say a nut oil, I'm not talking about peanuts. Peanuts are not a nut. They're like you, but like a walnut oil, a hazelnut oil, whatever. Like if you had some reason for it, it, but I wouldn't make it a dietary staple. Your dietary staples for oils and fats should be from animal fats. And the guy that asked this question said, I haven't experimented with making tallow and and, and stuff like that. You need to because it's not hard. As soon as you do it, you'll be like, oh, this is stupid easy. Just start trimming all the beef fat off all your beef. And when you get enough to fill a small uh, crock pot, like a mini crock pot, throw it in there and render it down and strain it out. And the first time you do it, you'll be like, oh, this is simple. I just made a pint of chicken schmaltz, which is a rendered chicken fat. We bought a ton of chicken thighs. I went through and parted them all out into bones, skin, and with the skin. Trimmed excess fat and boneless chicken thigh cutlets. Cooked the chicken thigh cutlets, packaged them away so we can pull them out of the freezer to use them already cooked, ready to go. The skin, I basically threw in a frying pan and cooked it like halfway, shrink it, put it in the oven and baked it till crisp. Now I got chicken nachos, basically, chicken crisp, chicken pork rinds. The fat that was remaining in the pan, I took all the little trimmings of fat off this, and this was about 40 chicken thighs threw that fat in there, rendered it down. We ate the little bits of fat. They were delicious. And then we strained out the schmaltz, and I've got a quart of chicken schmaltz. So both beef tallow, lard, bacon rendering, all that stuff is what you should be cooking with. It's basically free if you'll just start developing a process by which you obtain it. And if you get a small amount of something, vacuum seal it or whatever, throw it in the freezer, put it somewhere it won't end up buried and forgotten about, and when you, when you get enough material, go ahead when it's worth your time and, and make it. You'll be much better off. And, uh, next up, let's talk about property line with transmission, uh, property with transmission lines on it. And let me try to read the actual question so I get it a little more specific to what's being asked. Luke says, should there be any reason for concern homesteading farming near transmission lines? I've read about the danger of electric magnetic field due to high voltage transmission lines to people's health, including cancer, sleep issues, et cetera. Is this something to be concerned about for both human and animal health, or is it just tinfoil hat thinking Jack? Luke, I can tell you there is EMI radiation that comes off high tense lines. Like So just for those that are not really switched on to what Luke's asking about here, he's not talking about, if you drive down most streets where they don't have underground cabling, you see a telephone poles or telegraph poles and a bunch of lines going across them. He's not, and there's probably a line that comes to your house if where you live, you don't have underground, uh, uh, utilities. He's not talking about that. He's talking about when you look and you see the big ass transmission lines that move massive amounts of power long distance, drop it into substations so it can then be distributed over the type of lines we were just talking about. When I owned my property in Pennsylvania, it was only a little over an acre, and the western portion of it had a transmission line going across it. That created an easement issue. About once a year, I had helicopter people. They would fly the lines to inspect them. No one ever showed up my property, and there were no poles on my property. The line went across the edge of my property. I can't tell you we noticed any problems, sleep problems. Nobody had a tumor grow out of their neck, but we only lived there three years. If I needed to buy a property again, and I was where I was at the time that I bought that property, which is we had been looking for a long time and we needed a house, I would not write that house off because of that. I would tell you if there was a competitive property that was close, it probably would be the deciding factor and I'd go without it. And then how big a piece of property, where are these lines, and how are they going to affect you? So if we're talking, let's say, a 10-acre property and we're talking about transmission lines going across like the back one tenth of the property, I don't even care other than the easement issues. If we're talking about lines that are really close to over your house, I would at least give pause. And if I wouldn't necessarily not buy it, but I would if I had another way, I would probably use it. And just backtracking for a second, K-Balk here says paprika crispy chicken skins are one of my go-tos that's funny because what I do with mine when I throw them in the frying pan and what I do is I like half cook them in the frying pan and finish them in the oven and when I put when I put them in the frying pan as they go in the frying pan they get hit with salt that way the salt is there when they shrink up and it gets into the skin then when they get they go into the oven they go on a half sheet pan with a cooling rack with, with uh, aluminum foil underneath it, so there's no real cleanup to do. You just dump the extra chicken fat into your jar and roll up the foil and throw it away, right? And But what I put on them when they, before they go in the oven is paprika and garlic powder. So paprika, garlic powder, salt, and pepper. It just, yeah, it's delicious, so delicious. Uh, and my wife really went nuts over the little bits of fat that were left over there. They were even better than the skins, I think. Uh, anyway, on the transmission lines, that's kind of where I where I fall on that. I'm not a purist on just about anything. Uh, moving on, I want to talk to you guys now about wicking beds. And uh, this is interesting to me because I don't really have a lot of static wicking beds. I think maybe he means flow-through wicking beds. Um, so... He said, with your new design of your static wicking beds, again, I really don't know where I have a static wicking bed. All, all of mine have flow-through. About five years ago, I started converting my flow-through wicking beds that were designed in your, oh, I know what he's saying, to static ones. I put an automated watering system on each of them to water level I wanted, so you picture it attached to the design. There's some advantages to this is it does not strip out nutrients as much, and it keeps it in the stock tank. It may strip out the water at the bottom of the stock tank reservoir, but it doesn't leave the system. It also doesn't have a downspout from your original design that gets plugged up. I have less failures. Okay. The challenge is there's not as much aeration as I fear, and I fear that my beds may have become more anaerobic. Last year's growth was some of the best I have had. Okay. Right there. That tells you, you don't have a lot to worry about. Uh, last year, last year's growth, some of the best. However, I keep the water level right at the weed barrier height. And still do have two wicks in them. Clean water goes in the top of the riser and overflows, if not needed to top off the bed. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this being anaerobic, potentially limiting growth. I'm currently in the process of revealing 10 other flow throughs to static. So he doesn't really mean static. He means once or twice a day timed flow through. So you have your wicking bed and you have some reservoir of water. That water then is pushed through, brings your level of your wicking back to the level that you have it set at. Anything beyond that level overflows back into the reservoir. But I have some of them now, they go off once or twice a day. And I basically have once a day this time of year, mid-summer when things dry out faster, twice a day. I am not even remotely concerned about anaerobic there. First of all, you've got a wicking bed with some depth. If you do have anaerobic, it's going to be deep in the soil where the soil is really wet. And down in the reservoir, it's going to be anaerobic. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Nature, if you go deep enough in the soil, you will find anaerobes. A balanced system is layered with aerobic and anaerobic microbiology and not all anaerobes are terrible but if you have anaerobes up high in your soil profile that means you have a soil structure problem and a soil biology problem they don't belong there they belong down deep so even if there is some that's fine the other thing is i'm not going to have low oxygen water flowing through my systems because my systems are living systems so that water is always moving it's just not moving through the bed so if you are concerned about that, cause it sounds like, and based on his pictures, it's more like he has like wicking beds that are just wicking beds. These are not fish systems, right? So you're not maybe, maybe get yourself a decent air pump and have that air pump running in to keep everything nice and, and oxygenated in your reservoir. It costs very little money to do that. And you obviously have power. Um, if, uh, if you have a pump, you already have power. So it wouldn't be a big deal to add an air pump. And that would be a fraction of the cost of running a water moving pump. And that could even be on a timer and maybe it runs one hour every other hour. So it runs 12 hours a day. Keep a lot of oxygen in the water. You're going to have a lot less nastiness in your water if you do that. If you are keeping fish, you have to be moving it anyway. But I just wouldn't worry about that. I just wouldn't worry about that. Yeah. Um. Somebody's asking about ads again. Yes, yes, you you will get some ads. Yes, that's that's how I pay for gas money. There's ads in my videos. Anyway, moving on from there. Um, I want to talk to you about uh, Mark Beckendorf sent me this story, and I'll have a link in the show notes. I'm not going to pull it up on the screen though. I don't really think it's necessary. I, I'm just going to tell you the gist of it. So. Bernie Sanders says, yes, that Bernie Sanders, Bernie Glove Sanders. Uh, as some of you guys got Bernie'd at the workshop, if you know what that means, you do. And if you don't, you don't get to know. Uh, but Bernie Sanders said, we can't allow the food and beverage industry to destroy our kids' health. The time is long overdue for us to seriously combat the type two diabetes and obesity epidemics in America. A good place to start would be... Ban junk food ads from targeting kids. Oh, just shut up, asshole. Just shut up. You actually point, this is, see, this is what government does though. It points to an actual problem. It proposes a solution that involves restricting the rights of individuals and corporations that won't work anyway. And in this case, we'll probably never get past. It's just the way for him to talk again and say, well, please, somebody pay attention to me. No one pays attention to me anymore. Where's my Bernie bros? Your Bernie bros started to grow up and had to actually work for a living and they don't have time to think about you anymore. And the next generation of those stupid young people, they're off chasing other things. They're not interested in you, Bernie. This is, there we go. Now here's an actual, here's an actual, 100% actual solution if you're going to ban something. But you don't even have to ban it. How about, Builder of Builder Castle says, can't we just stop subsidizing for HFCS, high fructose corn syrup? If we just stopped funding Big Food's ability to literally get paid to put a complete toxin in the food, they might actually put less toxins in the food if we didn't pay them to do it. Because that's what we're doing. Builder is thinking. Builder will never, ever, 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 never be a politician at any level uh, of significance because people that think articulately do not get elected in the United States of America to positions of power. They don't. They don't, know. People that pander and talk a bunch of shit and tell people what they want to hear – Those people get elected. That's how people like Bernie Sanders stay in power for as long as he has. Man's never held a productive job in his life. Never been anything except a parasite of one form or another, still in power, worth millions of dollars, and supposedly fighting back against the rich people while he's one of the richer people in the country. Yeah. Yeah, I, I... I I just have no time for any of these people anymore. What are some other ways that we could solve this problem? One, we could stop recommending that people eat the food that's causing the diseases and illness. Do you really think that the reason kids are shoving all this garbage in their face is because there's a commercial on television which they barely even watch? Yeah, I know that it's hard for you to get your, if you're like 40, 50 years old, it's hard to get your head around. Kids aren't really watching TV. They pay attention to the kids, man. They really don't watch a lot of TV. They live on computers and tablets and iPhones. And they're not really getting bombarded with commercials for talkies or whatever. No, they eat junk food because parents buy it for them and put it in their little holes. They eat junk food because the advertising gets the parents to spend the money. Now, I'm not saying that no kids are influenced at all. I'm saying it's the minority of the problem. This wouldn't do anything. Right. Uh, and Jeff, if you're bitching about ads on my channel, this is what I'm going to tell you. Go to fucking Rumble. I'm going to just go on from there. I, I don't want to hear it, guys. Yes, there's some ads. You don't want ads? Go to Rumble. Go to Odyssey. Go to Twitch. Okay? Like or I'll tell you I'll make a deal right now with everybody here. If if, if I get super chatted for about 10 bucks an episode, I'll turn off ads forever on the lives. Okay? God. Just jeez. Yeah, a builder says, "But Joe Camel is gone, right?" So, did did cigarette smoking decline when they got rid of Joe Camel and the Marlboro Man and everything, you know, did, 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 did that happen? Did that happen? Oh, Jeff says he's not bitching about my ads. Sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. It's just bugging me that I get so much complaint about it. Uh, let me real quick on the ads tell you that if this isn't happening, instead of bitching in the live stream comments, please email me and explain what's happening. Right. Because I don't think so. I don't think that the problems that are being complained about are real. YouTube changed the way they do monetization during live streams. And you can allow video ads during live streams. Mine should all be skippable. No more than five seconds before you should skip it. And you should see no more than one ad every 30 minutes. If that's not happening, I'll turn it off. If that makes people bitch because that is what's happening, then I, you know, do you value what we do here? I, I guess. You know, if you can't be interrupted for five seconds, two or three times an episode, I I don't know what to say. But if that's not what's happening, if this is actually a problem, I'll kill it. It's not worth the money if that's being done in an improper way with you guys. If they're not, if YouTube's not keeping their word, which wouldn't surprise me, uh, I'll, I'll deal with it. Uh, <laughs> Jeff says they didn't mean to fire me up. So he's talking about pharmaceutical ads, by the way. Yeah. You know, here's my thing. I don't want to ban anything. I don't want to ban anything. But if we're going to ban things, maybe we should ban things that would actually have a positive impact in a broad sense. Jeff's right. There is nothing, and I mean nothing, out there that influences greater control over media than the pharmaceutical companies. If you go watch TV for like an hour, half the ads you see are directly or indirectly connected to the pharmaceutical industry. Ask your doctor for this pill that may cause your butthole to fall out in the toilet, but it's worth it because you can dance in a field and listen to a remixed 80s jingle. Okay, you're talking billions and billions and billions of dollars being spent on media advertising. And I don't believe for one minute these pharmaceutical companies think that directly it benefits them. In other words, I don't think they really believe that k Bonk is sitting at home and he's minding his own business. And he's thinking, my ass hurts once in a while, but... That's yeah, not that bad. And then a commercial comes on and some chick says, my ass used to hurt every day. And then I got ass hurt at all from my doctor. I talked to him about it. And now my ass doesn't hurt anymore. Side effects, including your ass falling off. And then k runs to his doctor and goes, give me that ass medication I saw on TV. I don't think they believe that for a minute. I think pharmaceutical companies largely advertise through all these media outlets for the exact same reason that lobbyists write checks to super PACs that back politicians. The only thing that these assholes are doing is buying influence over the stations, channels, and and, and mediums by which they're reported on. Do you really think that Fox News, the bastion of conservatism, baby. You really think they're gonna come on and go, hey, Pfizer's killing you. You really think so? Johnson and Johnson's killing you. Moderna's killing. Do you think they're? I don't care if God shows up in the CEO of any of these networks' studio and says, "I am God. You are sinning against humanity." You are advertising products that are killing people. I thus command thee to stop, or I shall smite you. They still they'll get smited. They'll get smited. Because money is their God. They would think it's a joke. They're being, what is that, show pranked or whatever, right? Jackass or something. They wouldn't even believe it. Nothing will stop you from protecting an entity that's funding you to the tune of billions of dollars. So if we were going to stop something, pharmaceutical ads, I'm not for banning anything, just to be clear. But if you said, we're going to ban something, Jack, here's a list of 20 things. And pharmaceutical commercials is on that list. And they said, you know what, Jack, you can't stop this. They're going to be one of these 20 things are going to be banned. And pharmaceutical advertising is on there. I can't think of something else that I would pick ahead of that. So, yeah, I'm with you, Jeff. Sorry if I sound like I'm going off. It's just it's it's irritating when people get so, especially in this audience, when you feel like you get somebody that's being just entitled. Like, oh, dear God, I saw an advertisement. But, again, guys, watch the live streams, especially you guys that do so regularly. If you're being bombarded with ads, please email me. Don't just make it a side comment in the live chat. Email me with TSPC in the subject line and tell me the frequency of the ads that you're getting. Because if YouTube's not doing what the settings say, then I will just stop advertising during lives. I'll just quit. Because I'll tell you what, I went into some of my past videos and it's supposed to be that frequency once they go static and it was like commercial, commercial, it was like 20 commercials in a two hour podcast. I deleted the shit out of them. So I'm getting to the point where maybe I'm just going to turn freaking ads off on YouTube. You know, in, in spite of what I just said, it's been a day that I've had some shit go wrong. So if I was over the top with anybody, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I probably just going to turn this shit off. I'm, I bet you guys are right. And I bet they're doing this shit moving on. So Yeah. Bernie Sanders wants to ban junk food commercials. How about we teach kids to eat meat? How do we stop convincing them to eating lots of bread? How about this? I bet you Bernie Sanders doesn't consider apple juice and orange juice to be junk food. Go look at how much sugar you're pouring into a kid when you give them eight ounces of apple juice. Even if it says no sugar added. There's a, there's a way they can play with that. Apple sugar is not added. Fructose from the apples not added sugar because it came from the apple. You know what the worst sugar to put in your body, honest to God, is is fructose. Go look it up. Go look it up. Freeze dry guy, email me. Learn from what I'm saying. Anyway, um fructose, go look it up. Go look it up. The digestive and metabolic process by which fructose is processed by the body through the liver. If you follow how the liver handles fructose, it handles it exactly the same way as it does alcohol. And to me, I believe the fructose is more dangerous than alcohol. Now, I'm not saying that alcohol is safe. What I'm saying is when you drink alcohol, You have a point at which you're like, I need to stop drinking some alcohol, or you go to sleep. Maybe you don't wake up. Like There is a limiting factor in the consumption of alcohol for 99% of people. And you don't give alcohol to a five-year-old in a baby bottle with a nipple on it when he should have been weaned off the bottle two years earlier at least. But people do that with apple juice and orange juice, and they think it's healthier than Coke. Go look at the sugar content. Right, so you have somebody that's consuming high amounts of fructose from the time they're a toddler, before they're old enough to legally drink. They've got 20 years of mule kicking their liver, but that's okay. We just need to ban. And what is junk food? See, you can't. This is my thing. You can't trust the government to do any of this. And let's move on. We probably spent more time on that than we should have. Uh, I also had somebody email me, or actually comment. Let me see if I can find this. Um, Yeah, here. Eric said, I planted daikon radish from a local farm supply store called Soil Buster. I put it in August 8th. Plants got really great looking. First frost October 30th, they were dead. Not cold hardy at all. They had plenty of time to establish, are there different kinds of daikon radish that may be more cold tolerant? Zone six B, Southwest Missouri. So understand, first of all, that... Someone, <laughs> someone who is planting tillage radish as a cover crop, broad scale, wants it to die. And radish will typically die and cold kill over hard winters. Now, he said his was killed zone 6B, southwest Missouri, in October. And I believe that would have been probably late October. Uh, October 30th, okay. On October 30th, right here in north-central Texas, which is like zone 8, borderline to 7, right? But zone 8, our temperature hit 28 degrees. So I'm thinking southwest Missouri was probably somewhere more like low 20s. And maybe it was your first freeze of the year. So since it was your first one, maybe you didn't see it as abnormally low or anything, because since I planted daikon here on the 4th of November, 3rd or 4th of November, we've had freezes, and I'm saying below 32 degrees, multiple times. It has done nothing to my daikon, but if you get a hard, long-duration freeze, it will kill daikon radish. This is a good thing. This is a good thing, but there are different varieties. So he's using tillage radish. This is basically an oil seed radish. It's radish that was normally grown so that the seed could be harvested to make oil out of it. That's why they call it oil seed radish. It is not designed to be particularly palatable for people. Further from there, it was then specifically selected with uh, selective breeding to breed very long, deep penetrating tap roots. That's its purpose. And you want it to die. It goes in the soil. It makes a big column. It dies and it kind of rots in the ground. OK, worms come in, poop goes in, infiltration happens. This is the way. What changes it, though? Number one, I use actual daikon radish. I don't use tillage radish. Um, I use daikon radish that you would plant if you wanted to pull radishes and eat them. And the reason I do that is I'm not trying to save much money because I don't need that much of it. You can buy a pound of daikon and pretty damn cheap. And a pound is a lot. It's a lot. And then that lets me selectively harvest some. Assuming I don't end up with a winter kill because you can still end up with a winter kill. The next thing is I almost never do a solitary cover crop, a monocultured cover crop. Um, if you have questions, do what Marty did, but take it one step further. Put the word question in all caps, and then you don't need to all cap everything else. But I've got you started there, Marty. It's the only question I have right now. So if you have a question for me you want me to answer in the Q&A period, question in all caps, and then make your question. I'll try to get those marks so I can answer them. Anyway, I almost never do a single Variety cover crop. I always do multi-species. I always want to do things like a deep taprooty thing, like a daikon. I want to do a, a cereal grain grass, something like an annual rye or a uh, cereal rye or triticale or barley. I always want a legume, uh, at least, at least those three. And usually I do like two grasses. So like this year I did daikon, winter pea, um, cereal rye, and barley and cereal rye, by the way, is one of the best generic general winter cover crops. It's also extremely winter hardy. When you do a multi-species plant, and you think about the way a daikon grows, this big kind of water fountain shape, they don't really do a huge amount of cover unless they're very densely planted, and that leaves a lot of airflow. So your freeze that might not have killed them, they get a lot more exposure, And you've also got the part that's growing up above the ground if that freezes enough that it kills it then the whole plant's going to die when you're surrounding it with this multi-species cover crop it's going to be far more resilient in handling frost uh that said i've never seen a daikon radish die above 25 degrees so when i say cold hardy relative to north central texas it's a good winter crop for us a really hard freeze will kill it and again It's not a bad thing unless it's the only thing you've planted, and now you're sitting from October till March with bare soil. So multi-species cover crop, and more of this will be covered in my forthcoming uh, course on cover cropping, which will be the next one after the one we're about to release on bioreactor composting. Uh, Moving on from there, and if you have any questions about anything here, again, just go ahead, all caps the word question, Give me your question. I'll star you because I want to try to keep moving fast here. Um, Someone just happened to note in one of the podcasts I did last week um, that we printed approximately 25 percent more money into the monetary supply, beginning with Trump and continuing through Biden. If you look at all the stimulus, all the new money, all the money printing that was a direct response to covid and all the money printing that was general day-to-day money printing that we do all the time, because when the government needs money, it just means we're on a day that ends in Y. That's all that that means. Um, It's about, from the beginning of this shit till now, about 25% expansion of the monetary supply, the M3. And that if you go back to when the inflation started, which was under Trump, by the way, it just got largely worse under Biden. The money printing and the inflation started with the Orange Man. Let's not deny that. And I know you want to give him a pass, some of y'all, because you're to the Orange Man's way of life. Right. But he did not have to print all that money and he did not have to sanction shutting our economy down. And he did not have to tell you to go out and get your wonderful, beautiful shots didn't have to do that he did didn't have to he gets some of the blame because he did some of the things relevant irrelevant who did it though it's 25 percent more money and when you look at the inflation compounded over the last year of Trump and these years of Biden it combines to be about 25 percent the monetary supply expanded at the rate of inflation some bitch isn't that a surprise no. It can't be that the underlying asset value is directly contributing to inflation. Some crazy ass duck farmer as. oh he did say that, didn't he? At the same episode this dude commented with that comment. Well done, sir. I don't remember your name. I don't know if I've got you here or I can give you credit or not. Let me see. Uh Scott. Scott, absolutely. Here's what Scott's actual comment was. It's interesting how in one year we increased the monetary supply by 25 percent. Then over the next couple of years, inflation adds up to 25 percent. odd! hope you spent your stimulus well. The reality is it wasn't all in one year. But his point is absolutely valid. The monetary expansion equals inflation. It won't always. Don't ever think for a minute because it's a fool's trap. Right. And and so many like all the gold salespeople fall into this trap, or they want you to so that you'll spend your worthless money to buy their worthwhile gold that they should just keep if they met what they said. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> um the, 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 the inflation BS trap is that the only thing that causes inflation is the monetary supply. It's the monetary supply and it and then it is plus the velocity of money and plus the secondary expansion of the monetary supply. So there's two ways the monetary supply is uh, expanded. One is the direct expansion. The government spends money it doesn't have. It borrows from the Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs gets the bonds. The bonds come from the Treasury. It's all a a game of grab-ass incest uh, and, and scraping of profit and robbing of wealth. But that's your, that's what most people think of when you think of printing money. That's one form of monetary expansion. The other form of monetary expansion that's largely been in check right now is all the other money that's borrowed. You buy a house, you start a business, you get a construction loan, uh, you put money on your credit card. That one's not been in check. The rest of them have been in check because interest rates went up to control inflation, which hasn't worked. Because some bitch, the underlying monetary asset value is not the only contributing factor, but the primary contributing factor to inflation. Maybe somebody should bring the Fed up or what's-her-name what's her uh, yelling and explain this to them because they didn't learn when they got their Ph. Masters or whatever it is from whatever university gave them a degree that isn't worth shit. They don't understand that. But there are other factors. Supply and demand is a factor on inflation in levels of employment, how much money you have, et cetera. But here we're looking at a pretty direct correlation and there's a reason for it. There's a reason for it. They printed the money. They dumped it into circulation. They stole their, their grift off of it. They gave you a check and then they made your cost of living go up by more than the value of your check across a year or two. That's a bad investment. If I said, I'll give you $10,000. That's, I'll give it to you. You can have it. You don't have to pay it back. However, if you take the $10,000, your base cost of living will go up $5,000 a year minimum for the rest of your life. So over 10 years, the $10,000 is going to cost you $50,000. And we're talking about your base cost of living, not your discretionary spending, like your rent, your gas, your food, everything. If you are the person that would take that deal, you're the person that runs down to the pawn shop every time you need some more money and thinks they're going to get their family heirloom back and all your family heirlooms are gone or some your payday loan person or something like nobody with comments, but that's the deal. Everybody took that was the deal. Everybody took when they took the STEMI checks. I hope you spent it. Well, I hope you invested it in something that outperforms inflation. Most of you did not. Anyway, uh, moving on, I had a question about bugging in versus bugging out. Found this one to be interesting. Um This comes from Sean. Sean says, what specific facts, keywords, etc., would you look for in an event that would make you decide to bug in or bug out? Example, there's another pandemic such as COVID. Naturally, the media would lie. Either downplay the threat or exaggerate the threat. Thanks for the info, Sean in Maine. Okay. This answer I'm about to give you is the same answer that I did entire shows on 15 years ago. It has nothing to do with anything that you asked. I don't care what the media says. I don't give a damn. Now, we'll come back to a little bit of modification due to pandemic history at the end of this. But this is how I'm going to make this decision. I don't give a shit what somebody on TV says. I don't care. I don't care what a politician says. I'm going to do a threat assessment, and I'm going to make a very simple decision. Do my odds of survival increase by leaving, or do they increase by staying, or do they remain pretty much even if I stay? I am only leaving if the first one is true. If my odds of survival go up by bugging out, I'm going to bug out. That's it. There is no other criteria. So if I live on the coast and a Category 5 hurricane is buzzsawing toward my location, I'm going to G-T-F-O-D, okay? I'm getting out because if I stay there, there's a large probability that my house is going to crush my spleen, and that's going to hurt, and I'm probably going to die. So I'm going to G-T-F-O-D. If anything's happening that there's no way to get away from or the thing really isn't coming to get me, all my stuff is here. All my preps are here. I can never carry what I have at my house, on my back, or in my car, in my truck, or in a trailer. Not going to happen. I don't want to leave unless it is the only way to increase my at odds of surviving or at least not getting injured. That's it. There is, there's no more to see. This is the thing that preppers have been doing in chat boards since there were chat boards. And there's always these make-believe fantasy worlds where you're going to go off and fight the Russians or the New World Order or the uh, the, the, the what is it the uh, the United Nations blue helmets or some other bullshit. The Belgians are going to come gash you or something like this is all fantasy bullshit. Throw it away. Now let's rein it back into a pandemic. The best thing you can be during an actual pandemic that actually poses a serious health risk to you is in one place, not exposed to other people. Sounds like a good reason to bug in. However, I do know the media lies, the government lies, and the difference in your life in a state like Texas versus a state like New Jersey for 2020 and 2021 was night and day. So the way you might have me bug out if we had a repeat of that is if I lived in a draconian state. And they started all their lockdown shit again, and it looked like it was going to have some duration to it. I would go to a state that has a track record of not doing that shit to their people. But you're not really you're not talking about a bug out the way this question's asked now. You're talking about a big bug out. You're talking about voting with your feet. You're talking about republicanism, and I don't mean the kind that has a political party, the GOP, and an elephant, a fat ass, and, and 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 this straight up ass, right? Like especially you got, right? In the words, uh or in, in the world of your your two dem- your two party system, right? A, a jackass and a fat ass. Like it, I couldn't make it a better representation of government. I don't mean that. I mean republicanism is in the the form of government that this country is supposed to operate under, and there's still some vestiges of it. And anybody that said there wasn't, I noticed something about them. They ain't been talking that shit for the last three four years. Because you can show them a hundred examples of it. So while Gavin was at the French Laundry, maskless, partying with his rich friends, and Californians were locked down tighter than a monkey's butthole, I had 80 people in my garage and we were partying, and all the sheriff did when he drove by was wave. There's your republicanism. True republicanism. A republican form of governance. A republic where moving within the members of the republic changes your life based on regulation due to state sovereignty. So that's the only way you'd see me move other than the calculus of, hey, something's going to kill me if I stay here. So if I think I'm going to be blown up, blown away, burned down, starved out, shot, etc., I'll get out. Other than that, 90 plus percent of things that would be considered a disaster, this is why we prep. And this is why we build strongholds where we live. And I think that, you know, I've said it enough times. I don't want to say get out, get out, get out anymore. If you haven't moved yet, I don't know what will make you move. All I know is something else will happen. What it is, I can't tell you. And here's the thing. Stop preparing for the last disaster. Stop acting like your government. Your government still thinks it's preparing for a bunch of box cutter wielding hijackers to crash a plane into a building. They still think that's what they're doing. They're not. It's not going to happen. what would happen right now? You're on an airplane and somebody gets up and starts screaming with a box cutter. Are you not going to, like, even if you get cut, that guy's getting a shh. No one's going to comply. No one's going to ever comply with that. Maybe a hundred years from now, people will get enough brain fog to think, "Oh yeah, if we do what the nice hijacker says, he won't kill us all. Let him in the cockpit." That's not happening. It's never happening again in in the, in the life of anybody middle age or older. You're never seeing that again. It's what we're preparing for in in, in our government space. Don't be like that. The next thing that they do to take your liberty probably won't be a pandemic. Uh and then there's the exception. It worked so good last time. Maybe they will. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh moving on. Let's go to the next one here. Um Should you sand down the finish on modern cast iron? Let me see if I can find that one. Um Yeah, this is from Mick. Mick says, would you or one of your experts might take up the question of sanding, grinding, modern cast iron to smooth it and remove stock seasoning? My wife recently watched this YouTube video from a couple she follows, and they talked about the difference between modern and old cast iron products. They recommended using an angle grinder with sanding discs, and it gives me an Amazon link, to remove the texture that modern cast iron has. No, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Let's look at Let's start off with not worrying about whether it's better than average. Like, let's just look at it from a straight monetary thing. So there's old, like Wagner and Griswold skillets. I guarantee you can find some on eBay right now that are what are called milled cast iron. So when they used to make cast iron back in the day, you had the cheap and the more expensive. And the more expensive was milled. So when we cast iron, it's poured into a sand mold. And so when you buy like a lodge cast iron skillet, which is a good quality piece of equipment, and you look at it, it's got all the little beads on it. Yeah. That's what that is. That's the imprint of the sand. So the steel was poured into a sand mold. It hardened, cleaned off, and it left the texture of the sand on the skillet. They didn't, they they don't, and, and this, I'm about to give you a reference article I think is great, but just if you read a part in it that talks about synthetic chemicals for seasoning, just don't listen to it. It's bullshit. Sorry, Paul Wheaton. Sorry. Um, They use vegetable oil, which I don't recommend you eat, but for seasoning a cast iron skillet to get started, it's no big deal. So they season it, and you buy it. If that's what you've done, you've bought a cast iron from a company like Lodge, it's pre-seasoned. Do not burn the seasoning off it. Do not sand it. Do not do anything. Just start cooking with it. And keep cooking things like bacon, high-fat things. Keep it good and clean. Get yourself a ringer, which you can find one of those available at TSPAS, T-S-P-A-Z, T-S-P-A-Z t-spaz.com. It will take you to a segment of, of my website. You can see all my product reviews. And in the search box, just type in ringer. R I N G E R, little piece of chain mail, like chainmail armor, to clean it. If there's something really stuck on it, throw a little bit of salt on it, use that. Don't use any soap, right? Do not put a cast iron thing ever in the dishwasher, ever, 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 never, ever, never, ever, never. Cast iron does not go in dishwashers, and it has no need of soap. It has no need of soap. It has no need of soap. It doesn't need soap. You shouldn't use soap. No good will come from using soap. It makes no effing sense. No soap on the cast iron skillet, period. Why? I don't know what you're afraid of, some of you. Germs. Okay, you're going to put it on a burner. You're going to turn the heat on. It's going to get so hot that when you throw a piece of meat in it, it's going to burn the meat to what we call cooked. Nothing you're worried about on that surface is going to survive that temperature. Stop it. Just use it. Leave it as it is. If you want milled new cast iron. You can get it. It will cost you about $300 a skillet. And here's the thing. I don't think it's worth it. I don't think it's that good. I think once you have a well-seasoned modern cast iron skillet, an egg will slide around in it. What more dost thou need? Don't do this. Now, in today's show notes, which will go up about 30 minutes after this live stream ends, there's a link right next to the bullet point for this one. It goes to an article by Paul Wheaton. He talks about polymerization, how to handle your, everything. Like I said, the only thing I disagree with is, they put a synthetic oil. No, they don't. No, they don't. No, they don't. Because I've actually talked to Lodge. They use 100% vegetable oil, which is probably corn or soy oil, right, or, or canola. And, again, talking about seasoning a pan. You're not talking about eating it. Relax. It'll be okay. Um, that's... And then just start using, use lard. Uh, Another oil that actually is really good for seasoning metals, at least in the beginning, to start establishing a polymerization is flaxseed oil. I know I said not to eat seed oils. I'm not saying to eat it. Okay. What you're doing, and if you read Paul's article, he does a very good job at this. You're creating a polymerization over time. And all those little sand gritty spots, it just kind of all fills in. And it doesn't really cause any sticking anyway. That's not your problem. If you have stuff sticking to a cast iron skillet, you're either using things that are going to stick, some sort of additive or something. You know, you're putting cheese in something. The cheese is oozing out. It's combining with something else. It's getting sticky. Uh, You're too hot or too cold, more likely too cold. Uh, You're not using enough of a lubricant like an oil or what have you, or you're just not there yet. It's not because of beady beads. It's not. If you really want a smooth cast iron skillet, look for one. Again, Wagner's and Griswold's that are more than 80 years old, typically you can get milled. Now, here's the thing. Someone said in here, I've never seen an old skillet that wasn't milled. I have, I have every time I go to an antique mall, I look at every cast iron skillet and I know what to look for on the back to know how old they are. And I've seen plenty of old ones that were the cheaper ones. Plenty of them, right? Uh, Matthew says milling machine go burr. It's not worth the effort. Go read Paul's article. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And that's why a $50 skillet that's been milled by a company making high-end cast iron, modern cast iron, is $220. Because there's a labor cost in that milling And even if it's your labor, I guess if you own the machine and you really want to go, it's not worth it. And this is, again, what do I recommend? I don't recommend cast iron anymore. No, I've seen the light. Carbon steel. Carbon steel. And same thing. Don't go milling carbon steel. Don't go baking off a pre-factory laid down seasoning. Don't do it. Just Go forward from there. Just go forward from there. Don't make this hard. Don't make, because it's not. If you think about, and this is in so many things, and it's why I took this question for today, just to get some perspective going. The Internet is a blessing and a curse. I think we all know that. But in this regard is how it's both. We can get more information today than our grandparents and great-grandparents could have dreamed of. Yeah, and that's good when we don't know something. However, all of a sudden, we're listening to 400 different opinions by people we don't know with credentials that total some total of negative zero and worried about their opinions of something we haven't even tried to do yet. Go try to select a water filter for backpacking and go to a backpacking forum. And say, I'm thinking about using this filter. And like 10 people will tell you what a genius you are and what they used. And they, they hiked across, they did the triple crown and they blah, blah. And then some people say, oh, it's okay. But have you thought about the fact that this little thing and this was made in China and somebody looked at it the wrong way one day. And then another 10 people will tell you you're stupid and you're going to die. And then you're going to sit around and go, I don't know what to do. You know, read real-world reviews maybe on a product and then buy the one that looks best for the money. It's that simple. It's that simple. Don't make this hard. Your grandparents figured out how to use cast iron without going to a forum to ask somebody about it. So take that past cast iron. But personally, I'm back to you. You will not get... When you were talking about sautéing, searing, etc., Carbon steel is the way forward. It's better technology. There's a reason people stopped using cast iron to begin with. It's heavy. It's bulky. It's great at retaining heat. It's slow to heat up. It's less efficient. Certain things cast iron is beautiful for. It really is. But if I'm searing a steak, I guarantee you, you're not going to get a better sear with a cast iron skillet than I am going to get with a carbon steel skillet. one more thing on that, though. If you are going to buy older cast iron, the one thing they really did used to do, and I don't know anybody doing this today, they used to make very thin cast iron pots that weighed about half of what, like if you have two 12-inch pans, like the thinner one will weigh about half what the thicker one weighs. And those, I've never seen one that wasn't milled. If you can find one, those are beautiful pieces of cookware. But well, you might have to look for a while. But I promise you, if you pay 3x what a lodge skillet works for an old milled one, you'll still come out ahead of buying the lodge one and milling it yourself. Just don't do it and don't freak out about this stuff. And you can read Paul's article where he sanded one and then really wished that he had not done so. Uh Next up to today, chickens for a year. <sighs> Uh, James says, could you recommend a 12-month plan for raising meat chickens to be butchered and then eaten by four adults, ideally at a rate of four chickens a week? I'm going to stop right there, James. James is raising chickens that are primarily laying chickens. That's good to know, Crystal. I'm going to have to look into that. Crystal says, Lodge has thinner pants now. I got one last year. It's about two-ish pounds lighter. I'm going to check into that. I'm not aware of that. That might... That might win me back to the cast iron fold from, from, uh, carbon steel, but, uh, probably not. Uh, <laughs> anyway, you're, you're not going to do what you're doing and raise four chickens a week. That's 200 chickens a year hatching birds from your backyard lane flock. especially the way he's doing it. Let me continue on with the way he's doing it. Um, He was told to not let the chickens brood in the open because the other hens with brood would attack the babies. So they individually caged the, the hens that were broody. Several lost interest. Six hens went broody. Two lost interest left the nest. End result. They have a final count of 13 chicks. For all the work in having to change the water and feed each individual cage with such a low production rate of chicks, the method seems hardly feasible to use as a food source, especially when our chickens only become broody for small parts of the year. We live in Australia. Our climate is roughly similar to Texas. Because you offer advice on how to best approach the situation for wanting to conservatively be able to produce enough? You need to run meat chickens as meat chickens. So there's a couple ways you can do this. One, you could buy Cornish Crosses and raise them. Right. And you got to decide how many you want to do in a batch. 54 times a year would be 200 birds, roughly four a week. That's one way. There's a considerable expense there, and I, I get that. The other way would be to create your own large breed hybrids. I don't know what your flock's made up of, and you may already be in a good position for this. But if you get a large breed rooster, uh, purebred one variety and a large breed hen group from another variety. And if you happen to right now need to add birds to make this happen, you could call out your roosters into whatever breed of rooster you've selected. And your hens, if they are all like brown egg layers, you could get a white egg li- layer, converse the other way, so that you can identify these eggs came from these hens and these are the ones I want to pull to hatch. So either way, what you would then be doing is probably a chicken tractor approach to this. You raise the birds until that they're of an age where they make sense to harvest and you harvest them. If you wanted to harvest, you know, four birds a month, then the approach that you're looking to do, which is let the birds brood their own babies and all that stuff might work for you. Um I will also say I have never seen one hen attack another hen's babies except once, and those were my feral bantams, and it was when one of the chickens had its eggs really close to hatching and one of the babies went into her nest and she lost her shit on it, and I've only ever seen it once. I've not seen this be, I'm not, so I'm saying it, it does happen. It's not the problem you were advised that it was. Still, it's best to give broody's kind of their own space. Um, But if you're talking raising 200 birds a year, I'm not trying to do that with mama chicken power. I'm either buying in my stock or I'm breeding my stock and I'm raising it as a unit and I'm harvesting as a unit. So this is the complex point here. 200 chickens is a lot of volume. I don't know how much freezer space you have, but 200, if left is whole birds, it's a lot of space. Even broken down, it's a lot of space. So figuring out the cycle that you want, you know, uh, you may have to set your sights a little lower. Maybe it's three a week. I don't know. But either way, I would be going on, I'm going to do 25 bird cycle or a 50 bird cycle. All the way to the end. And I would go smaller the first cycle in case you decide you hate this. But if you think you're going to have this while you just go out and grab a chicken every other day and process that day, it's probably not going to work out. And I'd I'd have to know more about the breeds you're working with to get any more specific uh, than that. Next up, um, I want to talk about... This is concerning to me to be right, and there's many times that I've been right that I, uh, I'm i not happy about being right, and this is one of them. So I recently said that I pay attention to next door for my area. Next door is like local Facebook is one way to think of it. It has nothing to do with Facebook, but it looks like Facebook. It works like Facebook, and it's for your neighborhood and surrounding neighborhoods. And it's been useful. I mean, we've rehomed dogs with it. We found lost dogs. We found out things like, hey, the neighbor's cows got out and are walking down the road. And, you know, we get the cows back in for the neighbor. I got a free deep freezer before the whole COVID thing that made them worth a fortune. Uh, we've got some pretty good stuff going on our next door. Well, people also vent about their frustrations. They seek work and they report things like, Porch pirates stealing Amazon packages. People that they see that look suspicious casing their neighborhoods. Petty theft. Vandalism. All that shit. People talk about it. You talk about stuff with your neighbors. Next door is just a way that you can talk to more neighbors at once. Don't like the company. The company is woke. They censor. They protect government uh, bureaucrats. We had bureaucrats posting bullshit here. I won't get into it again. I've talked about it before but basically the bureaucrat got roasted and it was, it was about grass and high grass. And basically please rat your neighbor out to us so we can go cite them. And then everybody piled on with all these places. The grass was too high that year from the rain. It was all city property. So then the next door people came in and turned it so that all the government officials can post shit with no comment. Right? So I don't like the company, but I like what it does. And what I said a couple of weeks ago is shit's getting worse in this country. And what I said is, if my threat level used to be a one here, it's now a three, which is enough to pay attention more and be a little bit concerned. Well, this is what Tom sent me. Tom said, you nailed it again, specifically the comment about if your neighborhood danger is a one, it's now a three. If you look on next door, which we are probably in the same wider area, he gives me a zip code, and yeah, we're in the same general area. The amount of petty theft in Fort Worth reported on Nextdoor is increasing. Additionally, the number of people looking for work, food, and other donations has increased since last year. All of these are everyday, along with increased pets available for rehoming. What I also learned is mortgage refinancing is starting to take off because people need them, or HELOC loans to pay for credit card debt. Tom, so yeah, there is a lot. I've noticed that too. Is more people taking home equity loans or doing refis. Because they need the capital, they can extract more than the low payment, at least in their head. Or some of them maybe don't have the super low payment, but they do have some equity, depending on when they got their house, how long they're holding it, et cetera. Um, yeah, this is something I really recommend, even if you're not going to really use Nextdoor that you get on Nextdoor. And that you set your settings so that you see your neighborhood and the surrounding neighborhoods, And just use it as a way to gather intelligence in your backyard. And it's been real. We have found it to be really helpful. Like dealing with, I don't know what they they call them, the Irish travelers or something. The guys that are, uh, they always they they run the same shtick every time. They show up in a in a a white pickup that is immaculately clean, and they tell you this story. Well, I've got a job with the state, they don't, and we're pouring some blacktop down the road, and we're going to have some leftover from this job, and we could come here and put it in your driveway or whatever. Well, what they're doing is they're making up a story, and if you say yes, they're going to go get the blacktop. They don't have any leftover, you're not getting a deal, it's a scam. And And I know that scam. So when one of those guys almost got his ass shot, I opened, If you, those of you have been here, it looks like Starlog 13 from Hogan's Heroes at the front of my property. Big giant gate, barbed wire, everything. But I had opened the gate to pull out, and this jackass drives onto my property through my gate uninvited, jumps out of his truck and starts talking to me and making his pitch. And he was, he was actually lucky I knew his game. Because as soon as I realized what I was dealing with, I stopped reaching for something, if you know what I mean. I told him to get off my property. Well, I immediately got on next door and let all my neighbors know that this scam was being run. I also chased the guy down to my neighbor's yard. He was trying to figure out how to get into my neighbor's gate and sat there and took pictures of his truck until he left and went somewhere else. So there's some real value to this, but there's also some value to gaining this intelligence. And I'm going to tell you, when you start to see all the petty bullshit Theft and things like that go up, it is it is a symptom of an underlying cancer. And you need to look at it that way and start upping your situational awareness. I, I mean it. I'm being dead serious on this. Um, it's Think about it like cancer. A guy has a little bit of pain in his side or something like that and he ignores it. But there's a, an underlying serious illness there and if it's ignored long enough, when it is discovered, it can be catastrophic and maybe nothing can be done. There's not a lot you can do in these situations like we're in right now, but you can be aware. And one of the things that you can also be aware of is like, are we talking general hard times, people being a little bit more likely to steal and jack with shit and need help? Or are we talking about, see, when I look at this, I realized that all around me looks the same right now. And so while that's concerning, it's a macro problem. If you see this kind of shit begin to go on in your neighborhood, especially if you live in conventional uh, suburban housing, and it ain't going on in all the places around you, you are in a neighborhood in decline. And you probably need to look at exiting while the exit sign is on and and the exit is good. And I cannot tell you when that moment is for you. You have to make that decision for yourself. But I can tell you, when we moved to Arkansas, the neighborhood I lived in, when we moved in there you know, about 10 years earlier, was great. It was great. Had we not moved to Arkansas, we would have moved. The neighborhood still seemed great. Selling our house was easy, but having lived there for 10 years, including into what was going on around me, I could see the decline. And and what really happened? That was South Arlington. And Arlington ended up with a police chief that his solution to gangbangers was to give them a hug and let them go. And it really started to drag the whole city down and it's continued. And some of that's been rectified since then. It's been a while. You know, it's been you know, ten years since we left, I guess now, maybe more well, about twelve years since we left. But when you see it happening in individual areas, which is what it was, that neighborhood, you couldn't pay me to live in my old house now. You really couldn't. You you really couldn't do it. I would not live there. And so you need to stay at, paid attention to the macro, what's going on in your state, nationwide, et cetera. But also use these types of, of windows to understand what's going on in your neighborhood. And uh, you may want to actually tie in with other people that are on their next door and compare notes with this, especially close, but not in the same. Because I really don't know how to look at, like, let's say what's going on in the mid cities on next door from from my account. I, I, I Maybe there's a way to do that. If you know some way to kind of broaden your view and say, I want to see what's going on in next door in this area. Let me know. But I, I don't know a way to do that. It, it's pretty locked down to. Where do you live? What's your address? And this is the area that's covered. And I can see why you would do that for the purpose of, of the uh, platform. Anyway, I got one more for you today. I want to light a little bit of a fire underneath your asses going into 2024, even though we will see each other again before. Um, yeah, Brian says 15 years. Holy cow. When you are doing a throwback episode driving down the highway, streaming at horrible drivers. Yeah, it's, it's 15 and a half years. Uh, I guess December 20th will be exactly 15 years and six months since the show started in 2008. So 15 and a half years, uh, tomorrow. Woohoo. Right. So we have our half, half year anniversary today. Um, yeah, uh, I want to talk to you about toolbox fallacy though. So I'm pretty sure. It was during a stream with John and Nicole that something came up about it. And I said, you know, like when I started hitting the heavy bag again, I was like, I want a better bag. So if I'll commit to to working out once a day for 30 days, at the end of 30 days, if I actually do it, I can get the better bag. And what that prevented was I really need a better bag. Well, when I get around to ordering one, I'll start working out. So I had to earn it. Yeah. And I think that that is a way to deal with the toolbox fallacy. So what is the toolbox fallacy for those that never heard me talk about it before? I think the last time we talked about it was like 2019, at least directly. The toolbox fallacy is Bill decides Bill wants a business, but Bill doesn't have a website. So Bill needs a website, but to get a website, Bill needs graphic design and Bill needs a merchant account. And Bill's business is going to be, I don't know, sealing fences So he needs equipment to seal fences. He probably should have a website, but he could be out sealing fences tomorrow. He could literally be knocking on doors with a very small amount of equipment that he can probably go buy today and literally buy the sealer, the stain, whatever. And it doesn't have to be that business. I'm just making an example here where he could not actually invest in the sealer or the stain until somebody said yes. But you want to do anyway because if it was a stain, you want to pick their color. You can go get the brochure for free at Home Depot or Lowe's and say, pick your color, right? But Bill, six months later, is still talking to his buddy Bob about one day. But he needs all these things before he gets started. It could be a podcast, a YouTube channel. You know thing you need for a YouTube channel is a smartphone and a button that's on the phone and start recording shit and learn how YouTube works. But no, toolbox fallacy is when I get these things, then I can go do the thing. And it's inevitable that you could be doing the thing without all the other things, or you could be doing part of the thing with only one thing or two things, some of which you already have. Instead, what we like to do as, as, as a species, as humans in general, is dream, which is good if we dream, crystallize the dream, and go get that some bitch. That makes dreaming productive, right? They dreaming about bullshit that's just bullshit, but we know it. That's entertaining. It's like the holodeck of your mind. That's fine too. Imagination leads to other ideas. All that's fine. But when it's actually a thing that you're saying you want to do, you come to somebody like me or John Willis, like, God help you when you go to John Willis with it, right? Or Nicole Saucer. We're going to beat you about the head and shoulders and say if you actually wanted to do it, you would be doing it. And then the full box fallacy comes. But I need, I don't have, I can't afford, etc. You know, one of my best friends, he built an entire construction mechanical and plumbing company. And they started off by taking complete shit jobs. But they needed to buy, like, these five tools, and this job required those five tools, and they could go do that job, build their CV, barely make enough money to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches while they were doing it. But at the end of that job, they had all this new equipment. Now they could bid other jobs. And now they needed one more piece of equipment for this job, and they could bury that into the bid. And eventually they ended up with enough Stuff to take even bigger jobs and to qualify for insurance and have a track record. But had they said, I can't do the first job because I don't have the stuff, instead of biting the bullet and buying the stuff they really had to have and using that job to pay for it, he wouldn't have shit. And the guy today is now building the largest under-roof facility in the United States of America. He's doing it as an employee now, but without that background, none of that shit would ever happen. Okay, Toolbox fallacy will destroy your potential. But I'm telling you, the pattern that my buddy used and the pattern I just gave you are the same thing. Whatever it is you say you want to do. I need a thing. Do you really need a thing to at least start doing the thing? No. Start doing the thing. Make a deal with yourself. I do the thing until I earn X dollars. I do the thing for X number of days. I do the thing until my, my pinky hurts, whatever it is. Then I get to buy the next thing that makes me go to the next level, but I have to earn my right to make this investment. And I mean, if you're, you I want to start a painting company. Well, you need brushes, rollers, and a ladder, right? You don't need paint. because you have a client, go get a client. You actually don't need the brushes, the ladder, and the rollers until you have a client go out and say, I'm a painter. You need a sucker, somebody that will do it without a, without a reference. Lots of people will. Get a job. Then you have a reference, and you paid for your initial equipment. Then when you go to the, and the says, do you have a reference? Actually, I do. I just filled, finished Bill's place. Bill wrote me a letter. I said, you can call them if you really need to. Usually they're like, okay, you wrote the letter and you have to give paint. Well, now you can get a sprayer, right? Or it's just some, you know, hiring like, like the, the things for masking stuff off or something. And you can build that whole business starting with almost nothing and going forward. And I don't care what it is. Go do something. Cause here's a couple reasons. One, action begets results and rege- results beget action. So when you go out and you do something that actually works, you're like, shit, okay, this works. You get excited, and nothing causes a new business or a new initiative or something in life to grow like initial excitement. And you have to get started or you don't get that. And it's actually a very precious time. It's like raising a kid. Like there's something special about from the time you pick that little baby up and, you know, they're puking on you and shit, and you don't care because it's your baby up till about the time they turn into like a teenager, It's just really special. And then they get an attitude and a problem and they look miserable. I tell my grandson sometimes if you was on a jet ski, jumping wakes with a puppy licking your face, you would still look miserable. And there's something special about the time before that happens. It's true in business, podcasting, all of it, that new thing, you have excitement and people want to help you. And it's just special. But if you don't, take the leap, you don't ever get the opportunity for that to happen. So start with something, do something. There's another reason. You might think, this is a great idea, I want a business doing this, and then you go do a job or two. And after you get done doing a job or two, you go, you know what, I hate this. And Jack says, there's enough opportunity in the world, I don't have to hate what I do for a living, go try something else. It'll be much easier to try the next thing. You've now got experience getting off zero, going from zero to one is the most important thing you'll ever do in any endeavor. Here's an example. When I got out of the army, I took a job working for Firestone. And I realized real quick as a young, aggressive person. I could have ended up moving up in Firestone pretty quickly. But I was busting tires down. And I remember about a week into this, I worked like a freaking 14 hour day. And I went home and I was the kind of dirty you only get when you work with tires or coal. And having worked with both, I can tell you it's the same kind of dirty. And I looked in the mirror and I saw my father who ran a tire shop, which is why I knew exactly. It wasn't my army training that taught me how to work in a commercial tire factory or tire shop. Right? Changing a tire on a deuce and a half is not like changing a tire on on a Chevy Cavalier at all. It's a total different process. But I knew the and I looked at some of my dad and I'm like, my dad basically did really well for himself doing this. And I, I'm making two X minimum wage doing this. I hate this. I'm not doing this anymore. It's not the same thing, but it is. If you go out and you pursue an idea and you determine that you hate it, you then have to sit back and ask yourself a question. Do I hate it? Totally. Or do I hate the way that I'm doing it? Can I modify the way I'm doing it so I don't hate it anymore. But when you determine that, like, no matter what I do, I'm going to hate this, don't do that. There is enough opportunity in the world today that you can find some. Maybe you don't love it, but at least you don't hate it. So by getting from zero to one, you make the deal with yourself. If this works and if it's worth pursuing and I want to pursue it, I've then earned the right to go to two. And two might involve adding something to the toolbox. But you've now murdered the toolbox fallacy that I must have this thing in order to do it. Because most of the time, not all the time, most of the time, you're only saying that shit so you can talk about it like you're going to do it and not do it. Right. I, I have a friend. He's an Eeyore. I did an episode that was basically me venting out of frustration for spending a weekend with him after he lost a job. And you would have thought this guy got a cancer diagnosis his dog died and his wife sued him for divorce all on the same day, the way that he was acting. And it was all because he lost a job, which he got another job eight days later, by the way. And in his field, I'm like, you don't even, this isn't even a problem. You weren't actually happy where you were anyway. This isn't a problem, you know? But it was, he was just miserable. This man has told me at least two dozen times that I've known him, since I've known him, about a business he's going to start. He is never. Taken one step, never taken one step toward actually doing anything he's talked about doing, other than to talk about it. He is, if I was making a t-shirt, and if he he was famous, I could put his picture on it and just put toolbox fallacy and everybody would get it. I like the guy, but he's never going to do anything. He's never going to do anything. Don't let that be you. There's things that you want to achieve in your life. If you need stuff, get the absolute minimum that you need to do something and go do the something and earn the next thing and earn the next. Earn it from being willing to invest. Earn it from having the revenue to invest. Earn it somehow. Get it done. Get it done. Don't fear your own success. I think there's a lot of people that do. I've literally had people say, well, what if I launch my website, I get so many orders, I can't fill them. They cancel all the orders you can't fill, fill the orders you can. Now you have a list and you know who to sell to. And by the way, you're full of shit and that doesn't happen. This is not a TV commercial from 1999 for GoDaddy. Quit making up your bullshit excuse. Go do what you say you want to do or admit that that's not what you really want to do. Seek and find that which you want and pursue it all the way, 100%. Now, real quick, guys, I want to let you know, I'm going to check before I show you this. Yes, it's still on sale, so I'm going to show you this. Uh, I always recommend you do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com so you can help me out no matter what you buy as long as you start shopping there. Uh, today, I do have an item of the day, but I also have a deal of the day that came in after I put out the item of the day. The DeWalt cordless jigsaw, the bare tool version, this is the 20-volt brushless XR. This is the top-end saw, $124. This thing normally sells for over $200. Um, it's on sale for 39% off right now. This morning when I announced it, it was on sale for 115 bucks. So it's gone up 9 bucks since I announced it. It is what it is. This is why I say get on my Telegram announcement channel, because that's the one place, you know, you're going to get notified of things like this. Uh, but I, I just want to throw out a thing like it's Christmas. It's time to buy gifts and all, not really for yourself type of thing. But this is a good price, a really good price on a power tool that if you're on the DeWalt platform, jigsaws, we generally buy last. And then when we buy one, we're like, why didn't I buy that a long time ago? You don't realize how useful it is until you own it, so I wanted to let you know about that. And then my actual item of the day today, I've, I've talked about this a lot this year. We now own two of these, uh, the Frigidaire Portable Ice Makers. You basically dump water into it, and it makes ice. Uh, it's self-contained. It's portable. You can pick it up, carry it with one arm, throw it in your car, and take it tailgating if you have a power inverter that you can run it on. You can take it if you go, like, and you're going to have an Airbnb or something, and you're hanging out with a bunch of people, you want extra ice. It, we use it as our primary means of making ice at this point because my ice maker uh, died and the cost of replacing it is stupid, and I'm not going to because my hard water kills ice makers. This is on sale for 88 bucks today. It also makes a good gift. And if you're having, like, family gatherings and get-togethers and stuff like that, it uh, would be a good way to have extra ice. Uh, we figured out at the cost of ice that basically ours paid for itself in two months. And... We didn't have to go get the ice, so I really recommend this thing. But remember, no matter what you buy, uh, you're always helping us out if you do your online shopping, starting at tspaz.com. And then last but not least today, let me remind you, kind of with all of that in play, uh, that if you're looking for gift ideas, you're running out of time, but you still got a little bit of time. Uh, I have a post up on the site. You just scroll down until you see Santa Val. And Santa Val has like the top 15 items out of the T-SPAS category that I've selected to recommend for uh, Christmas gifts. It also has the top 10 best-selling items of the year. Uh, some would make good gifts, and, you know, some probably would not be the greatest gifts. I guess it depends on who you're giving it to, but I just thought that would be interesting. With that, let's wrap up. I only had one question that I caught out of my one good eye anyway. Um and Marty said, do you believe there should be a food czar to regulate these foods? Marty's new to the show, guys. I'm not going to pick on you either, Marty. I, I, I don't mean it that way at all. I'm just like, there's a lot of people going, oof, did he really ask Jack if he wants a, a czar for anything? I don't want the government to do shit. I don't want the government to do shit because everything the government does, it screws up. If I could magically do some things in some perfect nirvana way to eliminate them or something, or to regulate them in, in, in a totally benevolent uh, way, then I might be tempted. Who would I trust with the ability to unilaterally regulate the marketing and distribution of food in this country? And the truth is no one. What I'm at, the only thing that I am pro government mandating would be something like GMO labeling or something like that, or contains high fructose corn syrups to bring awareness of it, uh, to prevent companies from utilizing the existing regulations and laws to skirt loopholes and refer to high fructose corn syrup as simply sugar or corn sugar. Because there's a vast difference between straight-up regular sugar and HFCS. It really is. But I don't trust government to do this at all, Marty. I don't trust government to do jack-diddly crap. I don't trust government to do nothing. Um, Another question just came in. The freak says, if they're allergic to corn and potatoes, is it safe to use vodka for tinctures? My guess is yes. This would be something I would use an abundance of caution with, okay? However, you can probably find vodka that is made from neither corn nor potatoes. I'm just saying, like, we're not talking about making martinis. We're talking about making some tinctures, which is going to be an herbal extract uh, method uh, for medicinal use. You're not using it very much. I have never heard of someone having a pass-through allergic reaction with a distillate, especially a distillate like vodka. And so I would say to Freak, you ever drink whiskey? If you drink whiskey and nothing happens, and vodka is going to be, usually vodkas are distilled multiple times and then diluted with clear or uh, filtered water, pure water, to bring the proof back down. There's not, I mean, vodka, the best vodka tastes like nothing with a little bit of burn. And there is like a, I know people always say that there is a vodka flavor, uh, but it is, it is mostly flavorless. I can't believe that the allergens that a person is affected with will come off in distillate, especially at like a a vodka gin level. I I just don't buy it. Um, I would also say that you could always use... Like something you know has been completely stripped out to the ultimate uh what's the crap people destroy their minds with uh Everclear. Right? And make purple passion and shit like that. Like Everclear is like a 190 proof or some shit, right? Uh it's like you went through my still and you use the uh the reflux column. And so I, I can't see anything getting the other end of that. And I, I I'm on to probably bet that Everclear is probably made with pure sugar. So, um as anybody know, you can go ahead and comment here while we still have time. I've never heard, I've never heard of, of a corn allergy passing through a distillate. I, I, I just don't, I, I don't want to say it can't happen. I just don't see it happening. So with that, I'll go ahead and wrap up. Hope you guys enjoyed me today. I hope you took what I said about, um, the toolbox fallacy to heart. 2024. You know, every time we get into a new year, people say the kind of thing I'm going to finish with. But I really believe, for many of you, it's your year. It's your year. It's your year. You thought it was going to be all nice now, didn't you? No. It's your year to get off the damn pot or shit already. Okay? Like, especially if you're a long-term listener. I've been listening to you forever. One day I'm going to. No, 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 you're not. No, you're not. Let me two by four hacksaw dug in you in the head right now. Go make 2024 your year. There's two types of people going, three types of people going into this year. When we're in this time in 2024, looking at 2025, then it'll happen faster than you know. They're going to say this was the year that I broke out. This year was meh or this year was horrible. The second two chose it, chose it. Let me be an example. Do you think I need to build an online educational platform? Do you think I need to do that? Do you think I'm worried about paying a single of my base bills between January 1, 2024 and January 1, 2025? Do you think I could just do what I'm doing, not put any more effort in and be just fine? If you're not sure, the answer to that is yes, I'll be just fine. Do you think I'm so money motivated? I always say don't hate money and, you know, money, money can't buy happiness, except that it can and stuff like that. Right. But I'm not the most money motivated person on the planet. You know, I could make a lot more money than I do. I really could. If I had been willing to sell my soul as I've been asked to do, like, I don't get a lot of requests for it anymore because I think the word's out that he's going to say No. But in the beginning, when I first took off, I had all kinds of people offering to throw money at me. And it was always a compromise in my head. I always said, no, I'm not so money motivated that in my 50s, after just rearranging my work life so I can put less effort into the show and make the same money, honestly, that I need more money so I did it so I could make more money. Now, I look at it this way. My dash... Just like yours gets shorter every day. And I have a 15-year catalog of material. That's only going to do so much for people, though. But if I can reach beyond where I already am, and I can give people skills and knowledge that they otherwise would not have, and I can make them take action, then long after my dash is extinguished, somebody that they taught that taught somebody else will be doing a thing that I set in motion. That's worth doing. That's worth the last few weeks when I've been done and I could have turned everything off and left my office until the next day, going back to work and doing something else. That's worth that. Because I believe that knowledge is the most valuable thing you can give another person. Far more so than money. Money is, you have so much of it, it's like a battery. When it's empty, it's gone. There's no way to recharge money without knowledge and action. I can't take action for you, but I can give you knowledge. I can inspire you. But in the end, you can be really inspired and really smart and sit there and look at the starting line and watch everybody run away. Or you can get in a fucking race. I'm in my 50s. I'm starting yet another race. You can start one, not on the new year, right now, today. Even if the meaningful action that you think of, like going out and getting a job, right? And I mean like a job job or like getting that first client even if that's going to wait till after the first of the year, because you hit the holidays. I'm all for the shutdown. You can still start laying out the plan, the groundwork and make the, make the commitment, make the commitment, impose a penalty on yourself. If you fail, if I don't do this thing by this day, then I'm going to have to fill in the blank with something you really don't want to do. Punish yourself for failure. Or at least put the threat of punishment for failure there. And you won't. You won't. Because don't make it. I will make X dollars by. You have no idea how much money you'll make. And you're either going to overshoot or you're going to short sell yourself. Put things that you, not easy but simple. Things you know. I can do these 10 steps between now and February 1st. If I am nine, or if I'm nine, eight, seven, six, anything but all 10 of them, I am going to punish myself with the following I have to give away $500 of charity that I don't have. I don't know. I have to listen to political speeches. I, it was something you really don't want. Don't ever think you can't, because the only way you can't is when you choose to believe that you can't. I know that sounds oversimplified. It's not. Make shit happen. 2024 is your year that will make you or it is your year that will break you. The choice, which one, is yours. Take care, guys. I'll catch you tomorrow. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house.